We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Away we go, episode 296 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. Yes, it is April 20th. It is 420, a day on which those who smoke the weed, smoke the herb. Those who smoke, as my pal, the Iron Sheik would say, the marijuana, uh, have at it. Uh, now, I can't say that I partake, okay? But I do not judge. So have at it. Knock yourself out. Light one up for me. Hey, maybe one day I'll do this podcast high, all right? Some of you probably think that I'm high with some of what I say. But no, totally sober am I when I tape this show. But hello and welcome to a Wednesday installment of the Al Galdi podcast, the only Washington, D.C. sports podcast or show for which there is a new episode every weekday and available to you oh so early in the morning. Uh, Tuesday was day two of the Commander's offseason program. The word is that the Commander's had perfect attendance. Yes, a hundred percent attendance at what is, yes, voluntary work. Uh, So that was good news. Uh, Tuesday also was the day on which the Commanders reportedly hosted USC receiver Drake London for a pre-draft visit. Uh, We are rapidly approaching the 2022 NFL Draft. There is so much to be thinking about with the Commanders Draft. And so next segment, I have a special guest for you to talk Commanders Draft, Austin Gale of Pro Football Focus. Uh, Austin is an NFL analyst and NFL draft analyst for PFF. He is PFF's associate director of content. Uh, Austin is awesome at talking NFL draft. Uh, We will talk Carson Wentz. We will talk about the Commanders potentially drafting a quarterback. We will talk about the many enticing receivers in the draft, including Drake London and Ohio State's Garrett Wilson and Chris Olave. We will talk Notre Dame safety 
Kyle Hamilton. We will talk LSU corner Derek Stingley Jr. We will talk Cincinnati corner Ahmad Sauce Gardner. Uh, we will talk draft philosophy and more. Uh, I really enjoyed my conversation with Austin. I do think that you will enjoy the conversation as well. Uh, Austin Gale of Pro Football Focus next segment. Also on the show, I will properly commemorate what happened with the Nationals on Tuesday. A double-header sweep of the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park. A 6-1 win in Game 1 on Tuesday afternoon. A 1-0 win in Game 2 on Tuesday night as for the first time in the 2022 regular season, a Nats starting pitcher completed at least six innings in a game. Yeah, that actually finally happened. The bar is low, people, but the bar was exceeded on Tuesday night. Yoan Adone ended up being the man, but the Nats pitching overall was tremendous in the doubleheader. Uh, Josiah Gray was good in game one. The Nats bullpen was great in each game. Uh, Look, the Diamondbacks are not good, okay? The Diamondbacks may well be the single worst hitting team in Major League Baseball, all right? But still, the Nats are pitching starved, okay? And yet the Nats provided lights out pitching on Tuesday, and a Nats starting pitcher actually went at least six innings in a game. As Jack Buck said after Kirk Gibson's pinch walk-off homer in game one of the 1988 World Series, I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening? I'm not sure, Jack, if this is really happening. The Nats pitching well, but let's go ahead and go with it. Uh, The Orioles actually are pitching well, too, but they lost late night on Tuesday night. A 2-1 loss at the Oakland A's as the Orioles hitting remains a problem. Uh, We also had a notable roster move by the O's on Tuesday. All tacos later in the show. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Tweet from Mike on Notre Dame safety Kyle Hamilton, who the commanders on Monday reportedly hosted for a pre-draft visit and who I talked about a lot on Tuesday's show, episode 295, including in a conversation with Notre Dame insider Pete Sampson of the Athletic Rights Mike. So Hamilton has a mystery knee injury last season and then runs a slowish, parentheses, a combine, and then slow, parentheses, pro day, 40 time. Bit of a red flag, no? I am sure teams have his medicals, so maybe it is not a big deal. Uh, thank you for the tweet, Mike. You know, so much of this is retroactive, isn't it? Like, so much of this is hindsight. If Kyle Hamilton ends up not being very good in the NFL, then we'll say, you see, that mysterious knee injury in his final collegiate season, those slow 40 times, all of that was telling. He just physically was not up to the task of being an NFL player. But if Kyle Hamilton ends up being good in the NFL, we'll say, ah, you see, that mysterious knee injury, much ado about nothing. Those 40 times, meaningless. You know, the result will drive the narrative regarding this pre-draft stuff with Kyle Hamilton. Uh, I always think about this when it comes to NFL draft prospects who have injury concerns 
and or who had disappointing performances at NFL scouting combines. Our guy, Jonathan Allen. Uh, Jonathan Allen is one of the great recent examples of how pre-draft concerns can turn out to be for naught. Uh, The Redskins took John with the number 17 pick in the 2017 NFL draft out of Alabama. This gets forgotten, but there was a belief that John might be a top five pick. He fell all the way to the skins at 17. Why? Two reasons. Number one, concern about him having arthritic shoulders. Number two, him having had a disappointing performance at the 2017 combine. Well, so much for all of that. Uh, As far as we know, John's shoulders have not at all been an issue over his now five NFL seasons and His disappointing performance at the 2017 Combine certainly has not been indicative of the player he has become because John, over the past two seasons, has blossomed into being one of the best interior defensive linemen in the NFL. Uh, Jonathan Allen for the 2021 regular season for Pro Football Focus ranked second among all interior defensive linemen in pressures and first in quarterback hits. And John for the 2021 regular season for PFF had a pass rushing grade of 90.9, which ranked third among all qualified interior defensive linemen. So like I said, the result with Kyle Hamilton will drive the narrative for these pre-draft concerns. Uh, Email from Rich on the commanders potentially trading for Arizona Cardinals quarterback Kyler Murray, who was in the news on Tuesday thanks to This tweet from NFL insider Ian Rappaport of NFL Network and NFL.com on Tuesday morning, quote, as the Arizona Cardinals begin their offseason conditioning today, QB Kyler Murray and many of the team's veterans will stay away and train on their own rather than attend the voluntary workout, sources say. This has been communicated as the plan for several weeks, end quote. Uh, Writes Rich, could the commanders package... Carson Wentz and Pixar players to get a trade done for Kyler Murray. How significant of an upgrade do you think Murray would be over Wentz? Uh, My man Rich is a big thinker. I like that. Rich is a big thinker. Uh, I respect that, man. Uh, So we know that Kyler Murray is not happy with the Cardinals these days. Kyler wants a big money contract extension. His agent uh, this past February 28th released one of the more bizarre and obnoxious statements that you'll ever see an agent release. We had some fun with that on this podcast a few weeks back. Uh, Could the commanders trade for Kyler Murray? Sure. I mean, anything is possible, but I don't think that Kyler is available via trade right now. Now, if that changes, uh, then our conversation here will change. But every indication has been that the Cardinals are not trading Kyler Murray. Would Kyler Murray be a significant upgrade over Carson Wentz? Uh, Yes, Uh, I do consider Kyler Murray to be, say, a top 13 or so quarterback in the NFL. Like when I think about the star franchise quarterbacks in the NFL, I do think of Kyler Murray. Now, he's not an elite quarterback. He's certainly not like a top five quarterback. Uh, But I think he's in that like top 10, top 12, top 13 range. I mean, Kyler to me is a legitimate franchise quarterback. He's also young and he's getting better. Uh, Kyler Murray's ranking in ESPN's total QBR, his yards per pass attempt and his completion percentage each has improved from one season to the next 
over his three NFL seasons. Uh, however, I do have to say, uh, this drama with Kyler this offseason has not been a good look for him. Uh, that Mort report on Super Bowl Sunday was not a good look for Kyler. Uh, as you may recall, ESPN NFL insider Chris Mortensen on February 13th on Super Bowl Sunday put out multiple bombshell tweets regarding Kyler Murray and the Cardinals. Uh, Mortensen tweeted that Kyler was, quote, described as self-centered, immature, and finger-pointer, per sources, end quote. Mort tweeted that Kyler was, quote, embarrassed, end quote, by the Cardinals' 34-11 loss at the Los Angeles Rams this past January in the wildcard round of the NFL playoffs. And Mort tweeted that select Cardinals veterans were hoping to reach Kyler on how he can better handle adversity. Uh, Also, ask yourself this, if Kyler Murray is so great, uh, if Kyler is such a great guy, how come the Cardinals haven't just given him the mega money contract extension that he wants? Uh, So there are questions with Kyler Murray right now. I do admit that. But yeah, I mean, overall, he is a good quarterback. He is a young quarterback on the ascent. And if you're the commanders, to me, you'd be foolish uh, not to at least consider trading for Kyler were he to be available via trade. Uh, We would go from Commander Carson to Commander Kyler. Uh, Well, Kyler Murray, for now anyway, is the starting quarterback for an NFL team based in Arizona. Uh, I sure hope that Kyler is careful in being exposed to the hot sun in Arizona. But I tell you, if Kyler has questions or concerns about his skin health in being exposed to that Arizona sun, you know who he should call? I'll tell you who he should call. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Whatever your dermatological needs may be, Dr. Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland are there for you. Dr. Verghese is a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. Dr. Verghese is one of the nation's premier dermatologists. He's a big Commanders fan. He's a loyal listener of this podcast, and operating under his direction is the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland. Uh, The institute focuses on medical skin care, cosmetic procedures, and skin cancer diagnosis and comprehensive care. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer treatments for conditions such as acne, psoriasis, and eczema. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer state-of-the-art services such as Botox, laser hair removal, and chemical peels. Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer advanced treatments for many skin cancers. Heck, Dr. George Verghese and the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland offer free skin cancer screenings. To find out more, call 301 396 3401. That's 301-396-3401. Make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you. That phone number again, 301-396-3401. You can also visit midatlanticskin.com. That's midatlanticskin.com. For excellent and comprehensive skincare, Contact Dr. George Verghese in the Mid-Atlantic Skin Surgery Institute of Maryland and make sure that you mention that Al Galdi sent you.
As is always the case, I appreciate you listening to the Al Galdi podcast. I also appreciate those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast. Uh, Please do those things if you haven't yet done those things. They cost you nothing but like 60 seconds of your time. If you're listening to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, in other words, the purple icon on your iPhone or iPad, you can give the podcast a five-star rating. You can also write a review of the podcast. The review does not have to be long. You know, we're not looking for some uh, novel here, just uh, like a sentence or two on how much that you like the podcast or why you like the podcast that sort of thing. Uh, this installment of the Al Galdi podcast is for Wednesday, April 20th. We are eight days away from the 2022 NFL draft in which the commanders have the number 11 overall pick. A lot of possibilities in terms of what the commanders could do with that number 11 overall pick. And so I'm very pleased to welcome to the Al Galdi podcast right now a special guest, Austin Gale of Pro Football Focus. He is an NFL analyst and NFL draft analyst for PFF. He is PFF's Associate Director of Content. You can follow Austin on Twitter at PFF underscore Austin Gale. And Austin is the host of a four-episode podcast series with the projected number one overall pick in the 2022 NFL Draft, Michigan edge defender Aiden Hutchinson. Uh, The name of the podcast is Hutch. You can listen to Hutch wherever you listen to podcasts. You can also check out Hutch on PFF's YouTube channel. Austin, very nice to talk to you, man. How are you? Doing great, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming on. So we on this podcast are interested in things from a commander's perspective. Just out of curiosity, how does Aiden Hutchinson compare with Chase Young when he was going into the 2020 draft in which, of course, Washington took Chase with the number two overall pick? So I do think with Chase Young, right, I think you had more raw athleticism. I think you liked what Chase Young offered from a bend perspective. I think he had more ankle flexion. He turned the corner better, better length. I think length will be the biggest concern for teams with Aiden Hutchinson. He's got shorter arms. I think they're sub 10 percentile. But the bigger difference is, is Aiden was more productive in college, right? He was more productive. He you know, was a better run defender, more technically sound. Like Chase Young, when he was at Ohio State, won with pure athleticism and, and just a like raw talent. Aiden is winning with some of the best pass rushing moves we've seen come out in a long time right like he can turn the corner he can counter moves he can attack half the man I do think what's getting vastly underrated in his pre-draft evaluation is just how good he is with his hands because he's a really good athlete because he's 6'7 260 right everyone focuses on the measurables but when you turn on the tape uses his hands really well sets up moves really well can play with his hand in the ground or his hand up I I, I do think that his technical skill set is getting underrated when you discuss him I think it's going to be what ultimately you know has him going inside the first three picks All right, so I'm pumped to get your thoughts on the Commanders in their upcoming draft. But as you know, uh, everything starts with quarterback. Uh, What do you think about what the Commanders have done at quarterback this offseason in trading for Carson Wentz? I wasn't a huge fan of the decision, honestly. The conditional second, right, you're paying all of his contract. And I don't think Carson Wentz is that much of an upgrade over some of the quarterbacks that were going to be available in free agency, right? You look at, you know, Mitchell Trubisky, Marcus Mariota. I, I felt that, you know, not investing draft capital and bringing in one of those guys would maybe be a better decision than trading multiple draft picks and accepting the entirety of Carson Wentz's salary. And then when you factor in, Matt Ryan was traded the Colts for just one third round pick. And Matt Ryan, in my opinion, is a bit of more of an upgrade than Carson Wentz, just given the consistency we've seen from Ryan. Now, 
I think that, you know, when you look at the decision, it was very early in the offseason. And it was also one that they wanted to make to kickstart the commander's era, right? Like they probably didn't want to start the commander's era with a free agent quarterback or a rookie or Heineke or whoever it was. They wanted to make get a little bit more aggressive, try and find, you know, a face of the franchise. And they've done that. I just doubt that Carson Wentz is going to have that much more success in Washington over what he had in Indianapolis. He's a roller coaster type of quarterback. He's very similar to Jameis Winston in that his highs are fantastic. But his lows could cost you a playoff spot in the loss to the Jaguars in the final game of the season. Yeah, I mean, you certainly can't deny that. And for that reason and other reasons, I am open to the commanders potentially taking a quarterback with that number 11 overall pick. Now, I don't have a lot of confidence that the commanders will be doing that. But, you know, in fairness to them, part of that, maybe even the entirety of that may be just that the commanders don't like the quarterbacks in this draft. But that said, where are you? On that, do you think that the commander should be open to taking a quarterback with that number 11 overall pick? I think so. If Malik Willis is available at 11, I don't think he will be. I don't think he gets past the Panthers and the Seahawks. But if he is there at 11, I think it's worth it. I think any other quarterback in that spot, you're maybe considered Desmond Ritter, but the league is a lot lower on Desmond Ritter than I am. I could see him falling a lot further than 11. So I think Malik Willis is that only quarterback where it makes sense to swing the bat, right? If, but I, I'm not a big Kenny Pickett fan. I don't love Howell or Corral at that spot. And Ritter's probably too rich for them, knowing that the league is a lot lower on him. So it's Malik Willis or something else, right? I think they can attack receiver and they can attack offensive line. It's not a it's not a roster, right, that's like loaded with talent. I think defensively they have a lot in the trenches, but I think the offensive line could use some help. I think the receiving core needs someone opposite Terry McLaurin, especially now that he's you know reportedly from Adam Schefter going to be missing the offseason because he wants a new contract. Like This team needs to get a lot better at the receiver position and, and, and to throw more chips at the Carson Wentz bet, right? Like, hey, if Carson Wentz is going to work, you're going to need a lot more weapons than you have now. I'm going to get to receiver with you shortly, but you on Saturday put out your final 2022 NFL Draft Top 32 rankings, and you do have Desmond Ritter of Cincinnati as the number one quarterback in the 2022 draft. That's obviously not something that a lot of NFL draft analysts have, Ritter as the QB1. Why are you so high on Desmond Ritter? I think this quarterback class has obviously been you know, talked about as one of the not great class, right? But I think, you know, people have said it's underwhelming. I think a more specific word I'll use is unpolished, right? It lacks polish. And with Ritter, his accuracy lacks polish. You wish he was a little bit heavier, right? He's got a little bit of a thin frame, but he has the most projectable tape, in my opinion. You see a lot of NFL throws on his tape. You see the backside dig in the 15 to 19 yard window. You see him checking his own protections. You see him you know, stepping up in the pocket and handling pressure well. Like He maybe doesn't have as big of an arm as Malik Willis or is as accurate as Kenny Pickett, but he has the most NFL tape and he's got a lot of experience. He's a winner. Like I, I bank on his floor projection in the NFL knowing that Kenny Pickett has to be nearly a completely different player when he gets in the league. And he doesn't have the athleticism. He doesn't have the throw power that other people have. Malik Willis and Sam Howell and Corral all played in really gimmicky college offenses. 46% of Sam Howell's plays were RPOs. Some teams don't clear 10% in the NFL. Like he is going to play a completely different offense. Same with Malik Willis. So if I'm a team, it depends what your expectations are. Do you want a quarterback that's going to be good in two or three years? Maybe you take a Willis and you take a bet on Sam Howell. But if you need a quarterback that's good next year, I think it's going to be Desmond Ritter. We're talking Commander's Draft with Austin Gale, NFL analyst and NFL draft analyst for Pro Football Focus. He is PFF's associate director of content. He is the host of a four-episode podcast series with the projected number one overall pick in the 2022 draft 
Michigan edge defender Aiden Hutchinson. So with receiver, uh, receiver has come up a lot for the commanders in terms of them potentially taking a receiver with that number 11 overall pick in the 2022 draft. The commanders reportedly have hosted uh, most, if not all, of the top receivers in the 2022 draft. Ohio State's Chris Olave and Garrett Wilson, USC's Drake London. Uh, Interesting, in your final 2022 NFL Draft Top 32 rankings, you have Drake London as the number one receiver in the draft, followed by Chris Olave, then Alabama's Jamison Williams, and then Garrett Wilson. Uh, Plenty of people, as you know, have Wilson number one. You have him number four. Would each of those four guys be worthy of being selected by the commanders with their number 11 overall pick? 100%. 100%. I, I don't think they can go wrong with any of those four guys. I think those those are my four favorite receivers in the class. And I like Alave a little bit over Wilson because he's a bit of a smoother route runner. I like his efficient feet, right? He's not as sudden or as dynamic as Garrett Wilson. But if I'm asking someone to come in and, and win the valuable routes down the down the down the football field, I'm going to lean into Olave more than I am Garrett Wilson. Garrett Wilson's better after the catch and, and can win the short and intermediate route tree. I think Olave wins down the football field, and I want that. Jameson Williams, too, is probably the best mover in this class. If he didn't get hurt, obviously, late in the season, I think he'd be everybody's wide receiver one. I think the late season injury will push his rehab into the season, and that will obviously drop his value down a bit. And then as for Drake London, I do think it's a complementary skill set to what Terry McLaurin has, and that helps the Washington football team or Washington commanders build their receiving core kind of like a basketball team and that London offers you know a power slot type that can work the short and intermediate is really good after the catch and then McLaurin obviously is this vertical stretcher down the field and it doesn't mean they have to necessarily give up on Curtis Samuel Deami Brown they can do a lot of other ways I think if the league has learned anything over the last few years is that you need multiple playmakers at the receiver position like gone are the days where you can just have one ask the Green Bay Packers right Devontae Adams and then who you know when you look at the two teams that made the Super Bowl last year Cooper Cup Robert Woods uh, before he got hurt. And then you have Odell Beckham Jr. You look at the Bengals, Tyler Boyd, Jamar Chase, T. Higgins. You have to have multiple high-end playmakers. I think that's what Washington should chase at 11. So for years in the NFL, I know there was a school of thought of quarterbacks make receivers more than receivers make quarterbacks. Are we in a different era now in which, like, yeah, clearly you want the great quarterback, but you also need great receivers too? Yeah, I don't think it's so much now that quarterback. I think quarterbacks make average to below average receivers good. But quarterbacks can't create elite receivers, if that makes sense, right? Like, you, you, as good as your quarterback is, you can't turn a Marquez Valdez-Scantling into an elite receiver. You can turn him into a good one. Maybe maybe he's average with different quarterbacks. But you can't – quarterbacks can't create elite receivers. And that's why Devontae Adams, Tyreek Hill, Stephon Diggs, Debo, all these guys have insane value. When you have high, high-end receiving talent, it just makes that much of a difference on the offensive side of the ball. Makes sense. Uh, We have had a lot of talk, a lot of buzz about the commanders potentially taking Notre Dame safety Kyle Hamilton with their number 11 overall pick in the 2022 draft. The commanders on Monday reportedly hosted Hamilton for a pre-draft visit. Uh, Hamilton is number 15 in your final 2022 NFL draft top 32 rankings. Major discrepancy between where you have them and where most others have them. Why? I think a lot of it is positional value, right? I think two of the best players in this draft are Kyle Hamilton and Tyler Linderbaum. But Tyler Linderbaum and Kyle Hamilton both play very low positional value. Like they play positions that are low on the positional value chart. And that's not just their impact on the football field. You know, the highest paid safety in the NFL doesn't make as much as the 20th highest paid tackle, right? Like it's like, it's just not a highly paid position. And when you're looking at top 10 picks, top 15 picks, 
You need to be investing those in rookie contracts that save the dollar and offer surplus value when they are on second and third contracts. That's not saying Kyle Hamilton, Tyler Linderbaum aren't phenomenal players. I think they're both really, really talented. I just think positional value and with where this class has strengths, receiver, corner, offensive tackle, obviously pass rusher. Those are a lot that, that, that those are a lot more valuable than safeties, especially if you know, there are there is some conversation that Hamilton's going to play more in the box at the next level. And if that's the case, it lowers his value even further, right? Box safeties are not nearly as valuable as deep safeties. I still think he can do both, but I, that's probably part of it as well. It's not because he isn't good. I think he's a phenomenal player, a phenomenal prospect, and people are right to have him as a top five, top three player, but I'm not drafting him ahead of some of the quarterbacks in this class. I'm not drafting him ahead of some of the tackles and edge rushers. Yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned the box safety thing with Kyle Hamilton because I know that that's a concern of mine, especially with Washington having just gone through the Landon Collins experience. Uh, Just to be clear on Kyle Hamilton, he won't just be a box safety in the NFL. You do see him as being a safety who can excel against the pass in the NFL. I don't think he'll ultimately just be a box safety. You know, when I talked to his you know, former head coach, Brian Kelly, he said he's the most versatile player I've ever coached. And some of that, you know, I, I think his athletic testing compares well to some of the better deep safeties in the NFL now. Jesse Bates, Justin Simmons, who aren't like 4-4 guys, right? But they do have really good range, good good instincts, you know, that vision head start that you look for at the safety position so much that I think you can play him as a rotational player. He's not... Derwin James, right? But I think he can do a lot of what you asked Derwin James to do. Derwin James, I think, is better in man coverage, and he obviously had like some cornerback talent and all that kind of stuff. But I think asking Kyle Hamilton to play deep safety and box safety at the next level, you're going to benefit a lot from that because I do think he's still a very versatile player, despite maybe not having elite high percentile athletic testing. While we're talking defensive backs, another thing that jumped out to me in your final 2022 NFL Draft Top 32 rankings, you have the LSU corner, Derek Stingley Jr. as the number one corner in this draft. Uh, We know the two knocks against him. Uh, He, in late September 2021, underwent surgery for left footless Frank injury. Uh, He also hasn't played at his best since his 2019 freshman season at LSU. Uh, Why do you like Stingley over the Cincinnati corner, Ahmad Sauce Gardner? And do you think it could be that the commanders could have their choice of Stingley or Gardner at 11 or probably not? I think there's a chance that Stingley is there. I'm pretty sure Gardner's floor is the Jets at 10. I I think that they're going to either take him at four or they're going to take him at 10 because he's just a perfect scheme fit. And I'm not going to argue with anyone who has a Gardner as the top corner in this class. Like, I think they were so close for me. Why I have Stingley over Gardner is what Derek Stingley did at 18 years old in the SEC, a true freshman, you know, two or three years ago is I don't think we'll ever see again. And I'm just banking on that effortless seamless production and you go back and look at his pro day he doesn't even have good form on his vertical and he goes up 38 inches <laughs> he doesn't even have good form on his three cone he gets a sub step like he is so naturally effortlessly athletic and that shows up in his you know 2017 film that i am banking on or 2019 film i am banking on that projection and that trajectory now what the biggest question is with stingley and you coaches obviously have more information than i do is why have you not been able to like build on that success? How much of that was the coaching staff? Obviously, there's some you know some turbulence with Ed Orgeron and that LSU coaching staff. How much of that was the injury? What do you want to do at the next level? Do you want to match and mirror guys? Do you want to follow guys into the slot? I think a lot of it would be coming from you know, conversations with Stingley himself. And I think that will be a determining factor on where he ultimately goes. I think teams will really, really value his interview and him answering those questions. 
The debate of, in today's NFL, whether corner has become a more valuable defensive position than edge defender. Uh, I know that pro football focus has been a big part of this debate over the years. Uh, Where are you on that? Has corner become more valuable than edge defender? I don't think so. I I, I think cornerback is still really, really valuable. But the secondary as a whole is a weak link system, if that makes sense, right? You could have two Jalen Ramseys, but if you know one of your cornerbacks is giving up you know hundreds of yards a game, it's going to cost you. It's very similar to the offensive line, right? I think we don't need, you know, teams don't need elite offensive linemen across the board. They need average to above average talent across the board, right? You can't have weak links. It doesn't matter if you have you know, Orlando or uh, Orlando Pace at left tackle if your guard isn't playing well, right? It doesn't matter if you have Jalen Ramsey at corner if your other corner is giving up 100 yards a game because on the defensive side of the ball specifically, you know, they don't dictate what the offense does, right? The offense says, hey, we have mismatches here, here, and here. This is where we're going to funnel the football, and we're going to make sure Jalen Ramsey can't even affect this game. And I think that's similar on the offensive line. Whether you have, If you have an elite left tackle, their player pass rusher against the right tackle. You know, you could dictate that kind of stuff as well. One more for you. When it comes to the inevitable perpetual debate of best player available versus drafting for need, what do you think most NFL teams now are doing? Do you think most NFL teams are on board with BPA or do you still see plenty of teams drafting for need? I, I think a lot of teams still draft for need, right? Especially teams that feel like they're in a window. You know, and I think, you know, Dallas always feels like they're in a window. You know, the Saints always feel like they're in a window and teams that you know, you go back to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers who traded up for Tristan Wirfs before their Super Bowl run. They were like, hey, we need a right tackle. We think we have a window with Tom Brady. Let's go get our guy. And I think they did, you know, that was filling a need, and that obviously was a home run. They went to Super Bowl, and Tristan Wirfs had one of the best rookie seasons we've ever seen from Napa to tackle. I think where you can find yourself, you know, when you're concerned, when it's concerning, is when you're vastly reaching on need over value. I don't even think it's best player available. I think draft is for value, and value, again, is these high-value positions, edge, off-tackle, quarterback, receiver, corner. And even if you, you know, there's very few teams in the NFL that don't need a corner, very few teams in the NFL that don't need another receiver now, or even an offensive tackle. And I think you, there are, you're no roster in the NFL. If you're picking in the top 15, especially is so set at any of those four high value positions, tackle corner edge and receiver to pass on one and go for like a center or a guard or a box safety. I think that's a very good way of looking at it. Uh, Austin Gale, NFL analyst and NFL draft analyst for Pro Football Focus. He is PFF's associate director of content. He is the host of a four-episode podcast series with the projected number one overall pick in the 2022 draft, Michigan Edge defender Aiden Hutchinson. Uh, Austin, thank you so much for your time. All the best to you. Oh, of course, man. It was great talking to you. All right, good stuff from Austin Gale. And up next, a very good Tuesday for the Nationals. A doubleheader sweep of the Arizona Diamondbacks that included outstanding pitching by the Nats, including a Nats starting pitcher actually, finally, lasting for at least six innings in an outing this season. Yes, that finally happened. I'll get to that and much more on the Nats after this. All right, so like so many of you, I work out, I try to eat healthy, I want to be healthy, but like so many of you, I'm busy, you know, two podcasts, two young kids, crazy hours, a house, you know how it is. Uh, We want to be healthy, but we have like a million things going on, and so that's why I leave my meals to factor. 
Factor is the ultimate meal plan for people who want to be healthy but who don't have the time to be planning and prepping meals. And Factor right now is offering a great deal to listeners of the Al Galdi podcast. Factor makes it easy to eat clean 24-7 with fresh, never-frozen, prepared meals that are so delicious you wouldn't believe that they're actually good for you. Factor saves you time by delivering chef-crafted meals right to where you live, eliminating the hassle of grocery shopping and meal prep, Uh, not to mention cleanup, no dishes to wash. Each Factor meal arrives pre-prepared and ready to eat in two minutes. It's even faster than ordering in. And Factor meals are put together by registered dietitians and expert chefs who work hand-in-hand to create meals with nutritious ingredients. Also, you won't get bored with Factor. Uh, Factor offers more than 29 meal options each week. Uh, Factor knows my preferences. My favorites are the buffalo chicken, the keto chili, and the Santa Fe beef bowl. Especially for those of you who work out, want to eat clean, want to put on muscle, Factor is perfect for you. So here's what you do. Visit go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. Yeah, you heard that right. $120 off. That's go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. Hey, especially with inflation, who couldn't use saving $120 right now? Give Factor a try. Save yourself $120 and tell me what you think. Visit go.factor75.com slash Galdi120 and use the code Galdi120 to get $120 off. You gotta try Factor because fitness starts with food. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Well, Tuesday was a long day of baseball at Nationals Park as we had a day-night doubleheader for the Nats with the Arizona Diamondbacks of game one of a four-game series between the two teams having been rained out on Monday night. Now, these games on Tuesday at Nationals Park were not, shall we say, well attended. Uh, Official attendance for game one was, in fact, the smallest crowd for a Nats home game since the Nationals franchise 
came to D.C. So this includes both the team's time at RFK Stadium and the team's time at Nationals Park. The official attendance for Game 1 of the doubleheader on Tuesday, a mere 9,261. Smallest crowd in Nationals history, excluding games impacted by COVID-19-induced capacity restrictions. Uh, Wow, that was... Really, I think an eye-opener for a lot of people to see attendance at a Nats home game that small, 9,261. And then official attendance for the nightcap of the doubleheader, official attendance for game two, was just 11,720. I mean, these were Pittsburgh Pirates-like home crowds for the Nats. And, you know, you get it. Uh, The weather on Tuesday was certainly not the greatest in terms of the temperature, Um, The Nats are a rebuilding team. The Nats did not do anything in the lead up to this season to truly get people excited about the season. Okay, I mean, (laughs) nobody's buying tickets because the Nats have signed, you know, Cesar Hernandez and Michael Franco. Okay, I mean, let's just be honest about things. But um, yeah, I mean, this is where we're at right now in terms of attendance at Nats games. But as sparsely attended as these games were on Tuesday, the games did end up being rather good for the Nats. Uh, The games did result in Nats victories, and especially from a pitching standpoint, there was a lot to like. Uh, The Nats won game one, 6-1. The Nats won game two, 1-0. So the Nats allowed just one run over the two games, and game two featured something that we had not seen at all so far this season. A Nats starting pitcher complete at least six innings. Yeah, that did not happen over the Nats' first 12 games of the 2022 regular season. But in game number 13 for the Nats in the 2022 regular season, a Nats starting pitcher finally lasted for at least six innings. That oh-so-low bar was cleared on Tuesday night. And so if ever there was a day on which Nats manager Davey Martinez should have felt, wait for it, proud of the boys, Tuesday was that day. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey. Thank you. Uh, do not look now, but the Nats now are six and seven on the season. And hey, I don't know how many times this season I'll be able to say what I'm about to say. So let me say this right now. Excellent pitching by the Nats on Tuesday. Yes, excellent pitching. The Nats allowed just one run over the doubleheader sweep. Uh, Let's start with game one, the 6-1 win on Tuesday afternoon. Josiah Gray was the Nats starting pitcher and he was good. Uh, Gray allowed one run in five and a third innings, he recorded eight strikeouts. You love that strikeout total. Uh, he gave up just three hits, a solo homer, a double, and a single. He issued two walks. He threw 87 pitches, 50 strikes, versus 37 balls. Uh, Gray, in the top of the third, gave up a two-out first pitch solo homer to Dalton Varsho to center field for a one nothing Diamondbacks lead. Uh, the homer went and projected 406 feet per stat cast. So that was a boo-boo by Josiah Gray. But otherwise, that was about it in terms of big mistakes by Gray on Tuesday afternoon. He was good. Uh, one run, five and a third innings, eight strikeouts. Now, there was an argument for keeping Gray in the game, you know, keeping him out there for more than just 
the five and a third innings. But this was Davey Martinez during his first postgame press conference on Tuesday, his postgame presser for game one on Josiah Gray. And then you'll hear a question and answer with Davey. Said he was good. You know, pitch count got up there, but um, he kept their hitters off balance. He made good pitches when he had to. Um, you know, but, you know like, like we always talk about, you know, he always he wants to go deeper in the games, but you know, when you have uh, we're in the fifth inning with 80 something pitches already, I mean, I thought uh, like I thought he, that was it, that was it for him, and, and it's cold, you know. So um, he gave us what we needed, but he pitched. You know, like I said, he kept them off balance and he pitched well. He kept us in the game, so. What was the, the thought process there on not allowing him to try to, to finish that out? Yeah, when we had, you know, two things. One, like I said, his pitch count was up there. Um, and we had Doolittle, you know, ready for that spot, you know, with his two lefties coming up. So um, I thought it was, uh, I thought it was, uh, like I said, I thought he kept us in a ball game and I wanted him to come out feeling good about himself. And, um, you know, and he did that. I mean, he said he, he felt good. Um, you know, by design, he, he wanted to throw more breaking balls today. Um, and he threw some good ones. Yes, he did. Uh, And I do think that we're going to start seeing Josiah Gray be allowed to last longer in games. But I do think that there's something to be said if you're Davey Martinez for getting Gray out while the getting's still good, you know, getting him out of the game with a good final line and feeling like, okay, he can feel good about his outing and he can build upon that outing. Uh, Josiah Gray working out as a Nats starting pitcher matters a lot. I mean, if this Nats rebuild is going to be a quick one, you figure that that'll require Gray panning out as a good major league starter, right? I mean, Gray and catcher K. Bert Ruiz were the top two prospects in the batch of four prospects who the Nats acquired from the Los Angeles Dodgers for Max Scherzer and Trey Turner in a trade that was finalized last July 31st. Well, here's where we're at now with Josiah Gray this season. Uh, He has made three starts. He has an ERA of 314. He has 18 strikeouts in 14 and a third innings. Uh, Obviously, you would like for him to have totaled more than 14 and a third innings over three starts, but an ERA of 314, that's good. Uh, 18 strikeouts in 14 and a third innings. That equates to 11.3 strikeouts per nine innings. Uh, That's quite good. And Gray now has been good in each of his last two starts. Uh, Gray's previous outing came in a 3-1 Nats win at the Atlanta Braves last Wednesday afternoon. Gray in that game, five scoreless innings, five strikeouts. Uh, So we had Josiah Gray doing well as the Nats starting pitcher in game one. And then the Nats bullpen in the 6-1 win on Tuesday afternoon was great. Uh, Four Nats relievers combined for three and two-thirds scoreless innings with four strikeouts. Uh, Sean Doolittle came to the game in the top of the sixth with one out and nobody on. He got the final two outs. Now, he did sandwich those outs around giving up a two-out first pitch double to Seth Beer, who became the first batter to reach base against Doolittle in the 2022 regular season. So Doolittle will not be perfect this season, but he remains uh, very good so far this season. Uh, Steve Ciszek tossed a perfect top of the seventh with two strikeouts. Kyle Finnegan tossed a scoreless top of the eighth despite issuing a leadoff six-pitch walk of Paven Smith. And Austin Voth tossed a scoreless top of the ninth despite beginning it by giving up back-to-back singles. And then came the Nats' one nothing win over the Diamondbacks on Tuesday night in game two of the doubleheader. And Yoan Adone in this game 
became the first starting pitcher for the Nats in the 2022 regular season to complete at least six innings. Uh, Adone in this game, six and a third scoreless innings. You love that. Uh, he recorded five strikeouts. He gave up just three hits, a double, and two singles. He issued two walks. He threw 88 pitches, 57 strikes versus 31 balls. And, you know, this may be overstating things, but it is possible that Adone was pitching for a spot in the Nats rotation in this game because Adone, who in theory anyway, is the Nats number five starter, he over his first two starts this season had gotten rocked uh, 10 runs in nine innings over his first two starts in the 2022 regular season. And of course, the way baseball works, right? Johan Adone ends up being the guy who is the Nats' first starting pitcher in the 2022 regular season to complete at least six innings in an outing. I tell you what really felt good about this doubleheader sweep for the Nats on Tuesday was that the two starting pitchers who did well are two young starting pitchers. You know, again, Nats rebuilding team. What matters this season is how young players do, how they develop, who truly proves to be building blocks for the Nats. Well, Josiah Gray, hopefully, is going to prove himself to be a building block. Joanna Doan is more of a long shot, but it is possible that he ends up being a diamond in the rough. Uh, this is his age 23 season. The Nats signed to Doan as an amateur free agent out of the Dominican Republic in July 2016. Uh, Davey Martinez publicly lobbied for Doan to make the Nats season opening rotation, and Adone ended up doing just that. So the Nats on April 5th optioned Josh Rogers to AAA Rochester, meaning that Adone had made the Nats season opening rotation. Like I said, he was bad in each of his first two starts of the 2022 regular season, but he was quite good on Tuesday night. And then how about the Nats bullpen on Tuesday night? Three Nats relievers combined for two and two-thirds scoreless innings with four strikeouts. Uh, Victor Arano came into the game in the top of the seventh with a runner on first, one out, and the Nats nursing a one nothing lead, and Arano struck out the two batters he faced. Kyle Finnegan then tossed a perfect top of the eighth, and then Tanner Rainey. Uh, this was something else on Tuesday night. Tanner Rainey walked the tightrope on Tuesday night. He tossed a scoreless top of the ninth despite loading the bases with no outs. Yeah, Rainey is the Nats' closer. He comes into the game with the Nats up one nothing. He loads the bases with no outs. He gives up a leadoff single to David Peralta. Rainey then issues a four-pitch walk to Christian Walker. Rainey then gives up a single to Paven Smith to load the bases. But then... Rainey records three consecutive outs, including striking out Seth Beer on four pitches for the first out. So it was not a work of art, that ninth inning from Tanner Rainey, but Tanner Rainey ultimately got the job done. And the Nats bullpen in game two, as the bullpen did in game one, ultimately got the job done. I mean, again, one run allowed by the Nats over the two games against the Diamondbacks at Nationals Park on Tuesday. Hard to complain about your pitching when you give up one run over the course of a doubleheader. Uh, as for the Nats' offense in their doubleheader sweep of the Diamondbacks on Tuesday, well, the Nats' offense was far from great, uh, was decent in game one, but was pretty bad 
in game two, but a few guys stuck out. Uh, so Cesar Hernandez, uh, he was an at starting second baseman and number one batter in each game in the doubleheader. Uh, Cesar Hernandez had not had an extra base hit all season. He on Tuesday, of course, had an RBI double in each game, you know, go figure. <laughs> but Hernandez in game one of the doubleheader, one for four with an RBI double. Uh, he and the Nats two run fifth had a two-out RBI double down the left field line to give the Nats a 2-1 lead. The double, Hernandez's first extra base hit in the 2022 regular season. And then Hernandez in game two of the doubleheader, one for four with an RBI double. Uh, he in the Nats one run sixth had an RBI double off the bottom of the left field wall for a one nothing Nats lead. Uh, also, Victor Robles had a good doubleheader. Uh, yes, you heard that right. Victor Robles had a good doubleheader. Uh, he was an Nats starting center fielder in each game. Robles in game one of the doubleheader as the Nats number nine batter went one for three with an RBI double. Uh, and this was a nice double. Uh, Robles in the Nats two run fifth had a two out RBI double near the left field corner on a one two pitch to tie the game at one and Robles smashed the baseball. Uh, the double per stat cast had an exit velocity of 106.8 miles per hour. Uh, also, the double broke up a no-hit bid by the Diamondback starter, Madison Bumgarner. And then Robles in game two of the doubleheader was the Nats' number eight batter and went one for three with a single and made multiple impressive defensive plays. Uh, if you watch the game, the top of the fourth inning ended up being the Victor Robles show. Uh, he was all over the place defensively in that inning. He began the inning by making a great catch, a diving forward catch of a lineout by Christian Walker on the first pitch of the inning. Robles then nearly made a second tremendous catch, uh, this on a deep fly ball by Paven Smith, but the baseball went off Robles' glove and then off the center field wall and then came back to Robles on what was a one-out double by Smith. And then Robles did make another nice play, made a terrific running catch on the right center field warning track of a deep flyout by Carson Kelly for the third out. But when it came to Robles, the batter in game two of the doubleheader, uh, Robles in the Nats one run sixth, a leadoff single to left field, uh, the single per stat cast had an exit velocity of 97.5 miles per hour. So we are seeing some better things from Robles as a hitter in recent games. It's all relative with him. You know, the guy began the season in a terrible slump. I mean, basically, he's been in a slump since the end of the 2019 season, since the Nats won the 2019 World Series. But uh, we have seen some signs of maybe Robles finally starting to come out of things a little bit here offensively lately. Uh, the Nats swept the doubleheader despite Juan Soto going hitless over the two games. Uh, the Nats uh, swept the doubleheader despite Soto, Nelson Cruz, and Josh Bell in the one nothing win on Tuesday night going a combined 0 for 10 with one walk. Uh, so, you know, that stands out, right? Because those three guys, Soto, Cruz, Bell, that's the heart of the Nats lineup. And, you know, we all kind of presume as those guys go, so will the Nats offense go. Well, the Nats won on Tuesday night, despite those three guys not doing much. Uh, Cruz in game one of the doubleheader as the Nats starting DH and number three batter went one for two with a single and a walk, also reached base via catcher interference. Bell in game one of the doubleheader as the Nats starting first baseman and number four batter went two for four with an RBI single 
and another single. Uh, Bell in the Nats, one run six, had a single to center field. Bell in the Nats, three run eighth, had an opposite field, RBI single to right field for a 4-1 Nats lead. Uh, Michael Franco had a hit in each game of the doubleheader. He was a Nats starting third baseman at number six batter in each game. Franco in game one, one for three with an RBI single and a walk. And the RBI single was big. Franco in the Nats, one run sixth, a two-out RBI single up the middle for a 3-1 Nats lead. And Franco in game two went one for three with a single. And Alcides Escobar was productive in game one. Uh, he was an ad starting shortstop and number eight batter in that game. One for three with an RBI single and a walk. Uh, Escobar in the bottom of the third drew a leadoff 10-pitch walk. Now, he did get caught trying to steal third base for the final out of the inning. Uh, he was initially ruled safe, but the Diamondbacks challenged the ruling and were successful. But then Escobar in the Nats' three-run eighth had a two-out RBI single up the middle on an 0-2 pitch to give the Nats a 6-1 lead. Uh, Lucius Fox was the Nats' starting shortstop and number nine batter in game two. But overall, a lot to like for the Nats in this doubleheader sweep of the Diamondbacks. I get it. The Diamondbacks are not good. But hey, in theory, the Nats are not good either. Although again, the Nats now are 6-7, 13 games into their 2022 regular season. Game three for the Nats against the Diamondbacks at Nationals Park will be on Wednesday night at 7.05. Eric Fetty will be the Nats' starting pitcher. So I mentioned the record low attendance for a Nationals home game with the attendance for the Nats' 6-1 win over the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park on Tuesday afternoon in game one of the Nats' doubleheader sweep of the Diamondbacks. Uh, Official attendance was just 9,261, smallest home crowd in Nats history. Uh, Now that excludes games impacted by COVID-19-induced capacity restrictions, but since the Nats franchise moved to Washington, D.C., there had never been a smaller home crowd for a Nats game than what we had on Tuesday afternoon in game one of that doubleheader against the Diamondbacks, again, excluding games impacted by COVID-induced capacity restrictions. Well, how about the attendance in Oakland late night on Tuesday night for the Orioles game at the A's? The official attendance for this game, 3,748. The Nats in game one of their doubleheader drew 9,261. The A's on Tuesday night drew 3,748. The Nats' bad attendance is all relative, people. Uh, Now, the O's did lose uh, late night on Tuesday night. The O's lost in front of dozens in attendance, uh, a 2-1 loss at the A's, who have, I think, the single worst stadium situation in all of major pro sports. I mean, the A's stadium situation has been a mess for years, but anyway, that's an A's problem. Uh, the O's now are 3-8 and eight on the season. Uh, the Orioles' hitting is off to a woeful start. The O's through 11 games this season are 28th out of 30 major league teams in Team slugging percentage at 289. Yeah, the Orioles' team slugging percentage is a pathetic 
289. 289 isn't the Orioles' batting average as a team. No, 289 is the Orioles' slugging percentage as a team. Uh, what's funny, though, is that the O's are pitching well, and they on Tuesday night got an at least solid outing from a starting pitcher for a fifth consecutive game. Uh, Chris Ellis was the Orioles' starting pitcher on Tuesday night. The O's on Tuesday selected the contract of Ellis from AAA Norfolk, and he on Tuesday night tossed four and a third scoreless innings. Uh, now, he wasn't dynamic, but the run prevention was there. Uh, he gave up four hits and three walks, though all four of the hits were singles. He recorded just two strikeouts. Uh, he threw just 37 strikes versus 25 balls on 62 pitches. But hey, four and a third scoreless innings from a guy summoned from AAA earlier in the day. I think you take that if you're the O's. And the O's ultimately in the game allowed just two runs. You know, Chris Ellis last regular season over six starts for the O's at the major league level had an ERA at 249. So it's not like the guy is completely inept. You know, he's not some bright young prospect this season is his age 29 season, but all things considered, he continued this nice run here recently for Orioles starting pitching. Uh, but I mentioned that the O's on Tuesday selected Chris Ellis's contract from AAA Norfolk. Well, there was a corresponding roster move to that, and the corresponding roster move was the O's designating outfielder DJ Stewart for assignment. Uh, so DJ Stewart's time with the Orioles organization may well be done. Uh, that's not definite, but that is very much a possibility. An MLB team designating a player for assignment, DFAing a player, uh, that immediately removes that player from the team's 40-man roster and gives the team seven days to trade the player or place him on irrevocable outright waivers. Uh, if the player clears waivers, in other words, if he goes unclaimed on waivers, he can remain in the organization or choose to become a free agent if he has more than three years of major league service time or has been previously outrighted. Uh, the O's took DJ Stewart with the number 25 pick in the 2015 MLB draft out of Florida State. Uh, this season is his age 28 season. He just, though, has not produced at the major league level. Uh, DJ Stewart in 622 major league plate appearances over five seasons now, 2018 to 2022, has a batting average of just a 213, an on-base percentage of just a 327, and a slugging percentage of just 400. Uh, now, he has dealt with a variety of injuries, and there has been this, like, snake-bitten nature to DJ Stewart's major league career. 2019 captured this perfectly. DJ Stewart, in August 2019, suffered a concussion on a fly ball that struck him on the head. Uh, and this happened in his first game back from a sprained right ankle, and then he, in October 2019, underwent surgery to repair a micro-fracture of his right ankle. Yes, he underwent micro-fracture surgery on his right ankle. So he has had a hard time staying healthy, but whatever the case, he has not worked out as a guy who was taken again with the number 25 pick in the 2015 draft. And the O's on Tuesday actually designated DJ Stewart for assignment. Uh, game three for the O's at the Oakland A's will be on Wednesday evening at 6.07. Uh, the game 
was supposed to be on Wednesday night at 9.40, but the start time for the game was moved up due to the weather forecast for Oakland. So a 6.07 start time for Game 3 for the O's at the A's on Wednesday evening. Jordan Lyles will be the Orioles' starting pitcher. And that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Thursday show, episode 297. will feature plenty on the commanders. Uh, I will talk capitals. The Caps will be at the Vegas Golden Knights Wednesday night at 10. I will talk nationals. Game three for the Nats against the Arizona Diamondbacks at Nationals Park will be on Wednesday night at 7.05. And I'll talk Orioles. Uh, Game three for the O's at the Oakland A's will be on Wednesday evening at 6.07. Have a great rest of your Wednesday, and I'll talk to you on Thursday. I don't believe what I just saw. I don't believe what I just saw. Is this really happening? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.